Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist, speaker, and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I named It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Welcome to today's podcast. Today, my colleague and sidekick, Sue Merlino, and I are going to be discussing narcissism. Narcissism and how it interacts with sex addiction. Thanks again, Sue, for being a part of this conversation. I find it to be a really, really important one that doesn't always get talked about in the context of sex addiction. Yeah, I was uh, interested to hear about how this all ties in together because, I mean, it seems like narcissism right now is a buzzword. Like, they're like, well, probably because the leader of our country is like the poster child of narcissism. Um, but yeah, I hear that that term is thrown around a lot. And it's almost like an excuse. Like, people say, oh, he's a narcissist or whatever. And that seems like, oh, well, that's not really okay. So it's interesting to take a little deep dive in on this. Yeah. I agree. It seems like the term narcissist has almost lost its meaning because it's used so loosely. And so what I hope we can do today is really look at it in terms of how addiction and in particular sex addiction interacts with narcissism from a clinical perspective, but also from a healing perspective. Great. Well, let's just get right to it. What is narcissism? Well, narcissism can be defined in a lot of ways, so I'm just going to give you the highlights, all right, because it could be a little bit more technical or or academic, and I'm I'm just going to give you the highlights that I think will give you the, the best flavor of what it really is. So we know that narcissists feel superior to others. In program, we sometimes talk about one upping or one downing Mm -hmm. or right sizing. And the idea around healing narcissism is that eventually they can get right sized. But in the midst of narcissism, they're one up. Okay, so they're superior, condescending, etc. Oftentimes, a narcissist requires admiration. They don't just want it. They don't just have a sense like "Mm, a little admiration would be helpful. It's a requirement to feel a sense of being okay in the world. Another word that sometimes loses its meaning is the term entitlement. They talk about, oh, he or she is is just so entitled. And the easiest way to think about entitlement, and I, I like this myself because it's so simple, It's wanting what you want when you want it. Mm -hmm. Wanting what you want when you want it. So it's that immediate gratification thing of I'm entitled to having something now. Almost like a little kid that wants an ice cream cone 
and they haven't had their dinner yet, but they want it now, and so they throw a tantrum. So that's an example of entitlement. Also, a true narcissist takes advantage of others, and that's really where it crosses lines, crosses boundaries, and intrudes on other people's rights. Alongside with taking advantage of others, there's little or no empathy, right? So we might hear about somebody who doesn't really pay attention to how they impact others. That's a big problem, which we'll come back to in a moment. And it actually goes along with having no remorse, right? Just doing what they want to do and, and really not having any remorse, any regret at all. And then another hallmark, the last one I'll mention is envy. Narcissistic envy is that deep feeling like somebody else has something or is getting something that they want. And it's very deep and it's also very primitive. Again, it's like a a, a very small child who envies the kid who got the ice cream cone because they already had dinner, but they think that they're entitled and, and so envious of that other person that it's it just infuriating narcissistic envy and and narcissistic rage often go together well that's what i was gonna kind of spiral off of that a little bit if if we can um as a child that you referred to i would see that leading into a tantrum but what kinds of things would adults do in that situation and you said something about rage and is that where these things come out Usually what we see with a true narcissist, and I don't like to use the term pathological because I don't think it's a disease. I think it's actually a relational issue where they have problems with relationships. And so oftentimes when somebody envies someone, they cut off ties from that person or they might actually get revenge on that person, right? Or narcissistic rage, like even road rage, for instance, comes sometimes from narcissism. And and so... How dare they do this to me when this has nothing to do with them? That's right. Right. Like, why did that car cut me off in traffic when maybe they just didn't see them? But they take it personally and, and really want to get back at the other person. Interesting. So is there such thing as like healthy narcissism? Well, that's a fantastic question because, and maybe you don't know this, but each and every one of us has a narcissistic layer. We're actually born with the desire to be seen, to be heard, to be valued, Mm -hmm. to be understood, to be respected. And so all of those things are actually very healthy desires. But what happens is there's two avenues that can take. One avenue is I want all of those things. I want to be reflected. I want my caregiver, my parent to mirror me. And sometimes that builds a sense of being loved, feeling lovable in the world, feeling confidence and and self-esteem. But then there's the ruptures, and the ruptures come in lots of shapes and forms. But let's say a child doesn't have a parent that really sees them or hears them or understands them, and maybe it's quite the opposite. Maybe they're quite critical or judgmental or punishing 
or abandoning any of those kinds just of things. Just not giving them back what they're requiring. That's right. Their basic needs. Right? right. The basic needs. Right. So that avenue is what I would call developmental trauma. And in the developmental trauma, oftentimes there's relational breakdowns. And so for a child, it doesn't feel safe to approach for one's basic needs. Or it can become more extreme, like asking for everything from everyone, wanting admiration wherever one goes, right? Or wanting to to feel like they're the best kid in class, no matter what, and, and nobody's allowed to keep up with them because they want to be teacher's pet or something along those lines. So healthier narcissism leads to confidence and self-esteem. Breakdowns in, in that kind of healthier narcissism or that relational experience of, of love and feeling lovable in the world can turn on oneself. And underneath of it, the, the child ends up feeling unlovable, often feels like, oh, well, if I can't depend on my parent or people around me, there must be something wrong with me. So there's actually deep shame under that. Mm -hmm. But it's not the shame that we see. It, the shame is underground. What we end up seeing is the narcissistic layer growing and the narcissist getting out of control with all of these things like envy and entitlement and right. uh, everything we're talking about here. Gosh, our psyche is so complicated and deep. <laughs> it's like there's a lot of things that can ch like change somebody's path or disposition and just... But we don't know. I mean, I'm sure our parents were doing the best that they knew how to do, you know, and and whatever was burdened them, well, whatever was a burden on them just kind of filters through. And yeah. Questioning, like, why did this happen or not happen? And it's interesting to, to see the wiring and all these studies that are out there. These have, like you said earlier, the baby watchers. Yeah. Yeah. And just developing these theories and figuring it all out is really helpful. It, it's so intricate. I mean, I say this all the time, but as much as we know, we really don't know. Right. And we're all so unique in our development as human beings. And just to share a little bit about my own experience with that, now, to comment on what you said, I call them generational hand-me-downs where the different generations have different challenges, relationally and otherwise, of course. And in my experience, unfortunately, my mom had a lot of narcissistic tendencies. I wouldn't say she was a malignant right. uh, parent, but she certainly had her own challenges and really wanted to love and develop deeper connections, but never really knew how to do that with anybody, whether it was me, my dad, my siblings, friends. She was a very lonely person, and that's ultimately what narcissists struggle with, is profound loneliness. And my mom was an addict of sorts. She was addicted to nicotine. She smoked cigarettes nonstop her whole life, chain smoker. She was really addicted to misery. Mm. 
She was so stuck in her misery and her victimhood, which is a form of narcissism, that it became part of her identity. And she would sit in bed and she would smoke her cigarettes and eat her sunflower seeds and read her newspaper. And I would come in to say goodnight to her. And I hardly felt like she even noticed me. She was just in her own world. And that was how she lived her life. And in in retrospect, because she died several years ago, in retrospect, I, I truly know she did the best she knew how. But at the time, it was really a heartache for me because there was that gap between what I wanted and what was available. So let's turn it around a little bit and um, talk about how narcissism fits into sex addiction. So I'm going to talk for a moment about addiction as a whole. And I'm going to say something that might, might surprise you or might surprise some of our listeners, but I believe that addiction is narcissistic by definition, because when you think about it, all addicts are self-centered. All addicts are in their own little bubble. Most addicts have troubled during their addiction, during their compulsive times to empathize with others or get get out of their own head because they're so stuck with the obsessive qualities that, of whatever it is that they're interested in. So with sex addiction, if somebody is obsessed with porn, for instance, that becomes the focal point, right? And that's where they feel like that's what gives them pleasure or what helps them feel less sometimes or feel more at other times. But either way, it's an escape, it's a numbing, etc. But narcissism is really something that has to do with the, the feeling of getting stuck in a loop, right? And sex addiction really in the brain, it's a loop. It's an obsessive loop. Mm -hmm. We could call it obsessive compulsive, but not in the classical sense. It's obsessive in the sense that it's thinking about something over and over again in an all-consuming way and compulsive in the sense that there's a behavioral aspect to it where somebody is watching porn, looking for sex, having sex, Whatever that is, that is part of that repetition compulsion, so right, to speak. Right. And so I believe that, that part of the healing and part of the recovery that we don't always talk about with addiction and sex addiction in particular is the idea of how do we help the narcissistic part of the addict recover and, and truly heal. Interesting. I mean, do you think of it as something... I know you said a relational disorder, or is it a disorder, or is it a? I actually you can turn on and off, or I I actually call them relational ruptures, or sometimes we could call them relational barriers, right? But either way, we're talking about folks, and I was there myself at one time where relationships were so complicated and and so painful, actually, that it was very difficult to try and work through those barriers and get close to others because it was too scary. I mean, if I tried to get too close to my mom, I would basically get rejected or abandoned. So it, it wasn't worth it. 
right. to to try and be vulnerable enough to do that. So the relational ruptures, as I call them, are really each and every time that someone feels let down or abandoned or rejected or judged. So let's talk a little bit about how to heal that rupture. How do you heal someone from narcissism? I didn't even think that was possible, so... Well, sometimes it's not possible. So I think you're on the right track with that. There are true narcissists who never make it to a 12-step meeting, never make it to a therapist, and never find relationships that are truly satisfying and healing. I believe that, that relationships are the healer not to sound too cliche, but, but love is the answer, ultimately, that if we're able to give and receive love more freely, that narcissism diminishes, and that experience of give and take and, and loving and, and feeling loved it takes the stage front and center. But there are those who have narcissistic tendencies or what I call that narcissistic layer mm-hmm. that turns into addiction that are open-hearted enough and hitting bottom in such a way that they truly want to connect. And it's really that desire for connection, that willingness to say, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to connect. I don't know how to give and receive love. I don't know how to have a healthier, secure attachment with another person. When somebody can say that, that's kind of like a first step. Right. I mean, the willingness is huge. Absolutely. Because you can't get, you can't take that step until you're absolutely willing. But that's, and then that's again, a lot of self-awareness and self-reflection. And do narcissists have that? I mean, if you ask them if they're narcissists, do they answer yes? Do they even know? Most people wouldn't self-diagnose in that way. And again, usually something really painful has to happen, right? To the point where it breaks through that defense, right? Because all of these things that we're talking about, just to back up for a moment, Narcissism is, is a survival strategy. These are people that are deeply brokenhearted. And they're trying to find a way to function in the world, like all of us, to try and find some kind of fulfillment right. in their lives. But they're just misfiring and misguided. And so to come back to your original question, I, I think about a few things that can happen with someone who comes in and says to me, you know, Andrew, I had the 16th girlfriend um, this year and, and I, I just exhausted and I really thought this one was going to work and I don't know what's wrong. That's the perfect opening. Mm-hmm. That's the starting gate right. because that moment is that window of opportunity to say, well, what do you want to experience differently internally? Let's start there. What do you want to experience different on the inside? And usually what a client like that says to me is, I just don't want to feel so incredibly lonely. 
and that's a huge thing with addiction. For sure, for sure. And 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 let's say they've had sixteen serial relationships, um, and and then I usually will ask a few other questions, and I'll find out that they're also addicted to porn. They're also going to um, massage parlors or or are using other avenues of compulsive sex. Mm-hmm. So what I'm doing is I'm, I'm really seeing what, what do they truly want? What is their motivation to, to change? And like I said before, if they can see that they have been self-centered, if they can start to, I can hold up the mirror, right? And they can see, oh yeah, I guess I am more concerned about my own wants and desires than anybody else's. Again, that's the first step, right? Mm -hmm. To say, oh, I guess I'm powerless over this. I guess this is unmanageable. And and then we talk about, well, what would other-centeredness look like, right? How can we go from self-centeredness to other-centeredness? And I might act a little bit like a sponsor early on. I might say, well, what, what would that look like? What would it be like for you to connect with others and to have some more fulfilling kinds of connections in your life and they might come up with something or other Mm -hmm. and then I might say well have you ever considered 12 step and they might say well I don't know if I really want to go to the 12 step group and I'll say well why don't you just check out a meeting just go to one meeting and tell me what you think about whether people are self-centered or other-centered there and there's probably a little bit of both but the other-centered people are probably people who have been in recovery a while and who are being of service to others. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, Sue, do you know why being of service to others is so powerful? Outside of addiction or inside of addiction? In both, in, in, actually. Well, when you're helpful to others, you're opening the door up to your awareness, and it opens the door up for self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And, and the door actually to our heart opens up within that awareness. Yeah. Yeah. So I always say that the reason why people in 12-step meetings start to take commitments to be of service to others is because it's different from what they've ever done before. Mm-hmm. Almost every person who goes into a 12-step meeting for the first time is self-centered. And so to take contrary action and to become other-centered is huge and and if you're not used to that or if it feels uncomfortable fake it till you make it right right (laughs) so that's the first thing i always recommend over time like i talked about before we're going to be looking at the barriers to relationships what are the blind spots that get in the way of the client understanding their problems with what I call healthier attachment or secure attachment. Mm-hmm. And those barriers are really the gold mine because if they can start seeing the blind spots, then they can become more open to the possibility that, that there's more to be learned and that they can actually become humble to the process. And, and once a blind spot is revealed, it can never be a blind spot again. Nice. <coughs> Like we talked about before, building empathy is, is also huge. And the way that we often can build empathy 
is to go back to the basics of communication. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to listen, really listen to others, and to learn to understand where they're coming from? So this, again, it can happen in one-on-one therapy. It really happens in group therapy, and it also can happen in 12-step, right? So one relationship at a time. How can I listen more effectively, and how can I understand more deeply? Do you think just by having that modeled to you helps? Modeling helps because there is a contagious factor to seeing the kind of intimacy that others have as a result of empathy, right? That empathy is one of the ingredients for true intimacy. Mm-hmm. And if somebody can see that happening with others, eventually their broken heart will say, I want some of that. So for sure, modeling can be part of it. Yeah. The, the last thing I want to add to this discussion about the healing and there's so much more we could talk about but one of it one of the things I believe is that if a client or if someone in program can start to establish a power a relationship with a power greater than oneself and a power greater than oneself as 12-step program talks about can actually be a lot of things it could be your favorite pet It could be nature. It could be God or universal energy. Whatever language works for you and whatever object works in terms of something outside of yourself, right? We're trying to help people get outside of their bubble. So it's so important for that cultivation of a relationship with anything. I don't care what it is. It could be a pet rock. but something outside of oneself Mm -hmm. so that there's that sense of humility and that spirituality of of meaning and purpose Purpose. that can develop. Yeah, Yeah. excellent ideas. I I recently was talking to somebody, just a quick little story, who named, he named all of his plants in his house and he has conversations with them. And there was one that was just flourishing. And he found that just positive talk created this rebirth and this regrowth for this plant that wasn't doing so great. But wow. once he named it, and he really is a true believer that he's his voice and his positive affirmations for this plant after he named it has 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 encouraged it to grow and be healthy. And I'm very curious to... Uh, to um, do that experiment, <laughs> but I'm actually going to add that to my list okay. of something that could be your higher power because that's a form of nature, isn't it? It is, yeah. When you said nature, I was like, yeah. I mean, why not? I would go ahead and even put the googly eyes right on the plant and, <laughs> <laughs> and absolutely and name it Barry and see what it does. You know, I also <laughs> along these lines, I had a friend who's significant other was an orchid grower Mm. and he actually grew the orchids in their second bedroom the whole bedroom was full of orchids and controlled the climate and i think probably talked to them it was the most gorgeous thing it was like a little orchid museum wow and 
he was obviously a green thumb, but I have to believe, and he's a program guy, I have to believe that it was such a healing force for him and that if I asked him about those orchids and, and what they meant to him, that he would say that they're a form of his higher power. That he cultivated. Exactly. That he created. Exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to explore that a little more. And, and you know, I, I talk a lot about pets as something greater than ourselves because I don't know about you, Sue. Well, actually, I do know <laughs> Lola is an amazing pet that your dog is, mm-hmm. is fantastic. But, you know, I have Bowie sitting here with us as we're speaking. Bowie is my Cocker Spaniel with mix. With his tongue sticking out. With the tongue sticking out, of course, because he's just lounging in his bed. But Bowie and my former Cocker Spaniel, Cooper, and then the dog I grew up with, Nikki, are absolutely teachers of narcissistic healing. Because as a kid... I was really wrapped up in my own head. I was really very, how can I put it? I I had so much kind of emotional chaos around me that getting that dog when I was seven or eight and having Nikki around until I was 19 was such a sanctuary for me because he taught me about something bigger than what was going on in my head. And so I got to connect. I mean, talk about the healing of relational ruptures or barriers. Unconditional love and Yes. And always there. Yeah. For sure. Twenty four seven. Have well I studied Reiki energy a little bit and animals have that pure energy. They have that Reiki energy and they're comforting and to be included in their source of energy is very, very, very therapeutic and comforting. Totally agree with you. I can't agree more. I think that pure energy is is something that we all experience more with more awareness when we pay attention. Right. And so even in this moment, as we're sitting here having our conversation, we have a relational field and, and a pure energy that exists between us that is based on knowing each other for 30 plus years. I think we're going on 34. So yes, that's a lot of energy for sure. Yeah. And that awareness and meditation and therapy is a big part of, of healing and, and our overcoming our narcissistic layers. Right. Because because we all have narcissism, it's not helpful to go into self-attack over it. A lot of people will say, oh, there I go again, or, or mm-hmm. I can't believe I'm, I'm in the same position over and over. Well, if we can approach it from more of a non-judgmental and curious perspective, it's, it's much kinder and it's much more healing and nurturing of ourselves. And because narcissism, I know that when I regress, which happens from time to time, and I feel like a little kid, that that part of me will come out more. I get rigid. I want things now. I I, I get envious of others. I mean, we all know what that's about. But having that awareness and being able to observe ourselves and then 
find the support, whether that be through therapy, through 12-step, through meditation. There's so many different ways to really contain the narcissism and just notice it and, and then come back to the proper age that we are today. Yeah, I, I actually have a little practice where awareness is the first step. Well, observing and aware and then not dwelling on it. But I I almost just laugh at it and, be like, and catch myself mm. and then move on. Because if you hold on to that, if you hold on to anything, for I think three days is like where it just starts to become a problem. Mm-hmm. But just to be aware, observe, acknowledge, that's the word. Acknowledge what, what's happening and feel it. Allow yourself to feel it. But then you have the courage to just move away from it and move on and, and mm-hmm. take whatever steps you need to do. And if that's meditation or exercising or sometimes even music or something that mm-hmm. just can soothe you and calm you and, then, mm-hmm. and move on. So this was great, Andrew. I, and I love having these steps. I kind of I think sometimes that some of these things are like an intervention <laughs> and, a, and a, a self-reflection of, is he telling me this because that's, this is what I'm experiencing? <laughs> but, well, that's, that's the beauty of it is that it applies to all of us. This is not just about clients or people dealing with addictive compulsive tendencies or people healing from trauma. It, it really affects each and every one of us, but in a particular way, it does affect those who are in recovery from compulsive sex. So once again, thank you, thank you so much for being here today, for sharing this time, for having this conversation, and for being in my life.